0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected. Stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawk Box. These are your headlines. The US and China preparing to sign the phase one trade deal. Bartley Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin says tariffs will remain on Chinese goods until the second phase has been agreed.
1: If the president gets a phase two quickly, he'll consider releasing tariffs as part of phase two. If not, there won't be any tariff relief. So there's nothing to do with the election or anything else. There's no secret agreements.
0: Meanwhile, the president, Mr. Trump, hitting out at Apple over user privacy, attacking the tech giant for refusing to unlock iPhones in criminal investigations.
1: Out with a bang, JP Morgan and Citigroup kick off earnings season with a surge in fourth quarter bond trading revenues, helping lead JP Morgan to its most profitable year ever. And deal disintegrating. European powers trigger a formal dispute mechanism in a bid to force Iran's compliance with the abandoned nuclear deal in a move which could lead to new sanctions.
0: And the head of the world's largest money manager sounds the alarm on climate change as BlackRock CEO Larry Fink tells CNBC exclusively, the risks are bigger than any crisis he's seen in his four decades on Wall Street.
2: We don't have a federal reserve to to stabilize the world like in the the five or six financial crises that occurred during my 40 years in finance. This is bigger.
0: So we finally got, we believe, to phase one signing day. The U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says Washington will keep tariffs against China in place until a phase two trade deal is completed. Mr. Mnuchin added that President Trump will consider easing the levies if a follow-up agreement is finalized quickly. The U.S. and China are set to sign an interim trade deal later today. Well, let's get the latest uh, from Martin, who has been covering everything from Beijing and looking at these things from the Chinese point of view. Uh, Very interesting. Mr. Mnuchin's comments, Martin, on tariffs come as a surprise to some people.
2: Yeah, uh, caught a lot of people off guard, uh, Steve, you're right. And good morning, uh, Europe. So the way I like to look at it is it's sort of a good news, bad news story, right? We're counting down to the main event, which happens in just a couple hours time over in D.C. Finally, the signing of this U.S.-China phase one trade deal, which has been long in the making. So uh, that's the good part. The not so good part is, yes, Secretary uh, Mnuchin coming out earlier today and saying that, look, no tariff rollbacks, no tariff cutbacks until the U.S.-China can find Finally, sit down and settle on a phase two trade deal. So, in terms of timing, going by the president's own comments recently, uh, he's not going to want to get to that, or doesn't think, rather, that it's going to be able to, to get done until after the November presidential election. So, we're effectively talking about the next 10, possibly 11 months at least, with tariffs existing as they are. But uh, again, that uh, is kind of good news, uh, uh, is it not? Because at least they're not going up. Uh, One view, though, is remember back in December when the U.S. decided not to layer on more tariffs or rather to jack tariffs up on that $250 billion tranche. There was a lot of relief on the part of U.S. business. How do they feel now, knowing the tariffs aren't going to be rolled back? Probably not very positively, uh, simply because it's going to continue affecting uh, their margins, as well as their pricing power uh, for the stuff that they sell into to uh, China. So that's where the situation stands. The deal itself, again, nobody really knows the content. We won't know until we get uh, pen to paper and ink on paper. As Pr- uh, Secretary Mnuchin promises, that's when the fully edited and scrubbed and translated version of the text will be made public. But from the little that we do know, a lot of skepticism remember about the very ambitious Uh, targets in terms of agricultural buys that China is supposed to be committing to up to $40 billion uh, worth Uh, for an economy here in China, which is growing sub 6%. Is there the appetite and demand to hit those targets for the U.S. side? Are farmers over in America going to be able to ramp up their production? in order to meet those targets because remember this is stuff you need to plant you need to harvest in between they need time to grow before they can ship it off uh, to uh, china uh so that's the situation as it stands and as the clock ticks down to that signing steve
0: martin excellent thank you very much indeed that right let us move on good morning to you by the way
1: good morning very yeah. happy to be joining you on squawk very today. nice to
0: have you on Squawk should we have us the rest of the week or is just the one only
1: i think just today
0: right are you as excited about the trade deal as some people um, appear to be in the markets
1: what it, we'll see if it happens. I would say, as we've learned before, happens, don't, don't count your chickens before they hatch.
0: scepticism, even by this show's standards.
1: I wouldn't rule anything out, judging by what we've seen in the past, but oh. it will be good, I think, for markets anyway, to get one more piece of uncertainty out of the way. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that's the very key question today. I'll leave that one hanging, because our colleagues in the U.S. will be speaking with the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, today, that interview, not to be missed, 1345 CET. And also, tune in later Later on for a first on interview with the National Economic Council director, former CNBC star Larry Kudlow, 1530 CET.
1: Well, let's bring in our first guest of the morning, Freya Beamish, Chief Asia Economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics, who joins us now from Newcastle. Freya, interesting yesterday to see the market reaction to those headlines, uh, and then Stephen Mnuchin's comments suggesting that tariff rollbacks would not be included as part of this phase one deal. Is that truly a surprise?
3: Uh, Actually, I think a little bit of management of expectations at this stage is is probably a good thing, and it... it... (laughs) I think if we look at the closest counterfactual, um, which is probably that there would there would have been a series of kind of checkpoints. If this is reached in the phase two deal, then we'll reduce tariffs. If this is reached in the phase. Uh, to deal, then, then we'll, we'll reduce tariffs. The likelihood in reality that they would have met those checkpoints in terms of the negotiations seems very small. So I think we might actually have avoided, um, a situation where there would, there would have been a lot of volatility around that type of, of a checkpoint. And now we just, kicked that phase two deal way out into the, into the long grass, really where it had been in reality. Um, but people seem to have been choosing to ignore that um, fact until now, judging at least by the, by the market reactions or that initial market reaction could have been just a kind of a jitters over whether the phase one deal will actually be, um, will actually be signed and how the Chinese would, would react to this. Um, the phase two deal, though, I think probably is in the long grass. Uh, The the phase one deal has taken such a long time to to get over the line, and that was really the low-hanging fruit or the low-hanging beans, if you like, um, just to put a terrible pun in there. Um, but the, that was that was the low hanging fruit. And that's already been picked now, hopefully, if this phase one deal gets signed, that the phase two was much, much more difficult um, looking at the real kind of structural issues between China and the US. And the fact that that's been kicked back into the into the long grass is probably um, not such a bad thing in terms of, of the volatility that it could have could have um, ensued if we had those checkpoints.
1: Well, leaving the phase two deal to the side for a moment, given it is a ways off at this point, uh, the enforcement mechanism has been one of the key uh, sticking points and and hurdles for the U.S. in terms of getting to this point. The phase one deal. I mean, what are the chances that China is willing to not only accept an enforcement mechanism, but that the U.S. is actually able to create a mechanism that is, you know, feasible for them to actually implement? So, how is that going to work? phase one deal.
3: My hope at this stage, again, from a perspective of of, uh, things actually matching up to what they're expected to in in reality, is that there's a a significant degree of, of vagueness from the phase one deal text. And it seems like that might be from the latest comments that we've had from the U.S. side. We might kind of we might be seeing that degree of vagueness um, coming through those those numbers that Mr. Trump has tweeted as to as to the 200 billion of of imports um, from the U.S. by the Chinese over the next two years and the agricultural purchases of, of 40 billion in the ne- in each of the next two years. When I first saw those numbers, it was a bit like, did I understand the Chinese trade data correctly? Because they seem like pretty big increases on what we have at the moment. If we take the the, the goods imports, even before the trade tensions began, um, they were sitting at about 150 billion. Um, and OK, that doesn't include services, but that's maybe if you add another kind of 25% on that. So the base from which to grow this um, extra 200 billion is, is quite small. And if you're kind of romantic about things, then you might worry about little things like WTO rules and, and annoying other countries and, and deals with, with other countries and the displacement that that could, um, that that could mean. Um, and turning to the, uh, the, the purchases of, of agricultural products, there's, there's little things like kind of climate and geography which make it difficult for China just to say, okay, well, we'll purchase many more um, beans from soybeans from, from the US. Um, it, it, if you look at the data, it's very, very seasonal. So for part of the year, they, they purchase from Brazil, part of the year, they purchase from the US. And that's just because the growing seasons are um, different. Uh, so to get around that type of thing in reality is, is quite Freya. is quite difficult. It's not all, all bad news in the sense that they'll have to um, they're starting from a kind of a lower base at this at this stage because they've already been um, reducing purchases.
0: Frey, I have many questions, as as indeed to you, and I thought that displacement of other countries is something that I've honed in on as well. How does this tally with the medium-term strategy of the Chinese? Because it seems to me this is a short-term sticking plaster for the Chinese in order to keep their economy rolling when they have the BRI or One Belt and Road Initiative, whichever way around you want to get your acronyms as well. Surely that is uh, quite bearish for long-term trans-Pacific trade between the US and China. If the Chinese are looking to source uh, the materials they need for their economy and markets for their finished goods uh, from elsewhere with the BRI. The,
3: the whole thing doesn't really add up in the long term. Um, I think what, what we're looking for from the phase one deal is Mr. Trump wants to put some big numbers out there. Um, hopefully there'll be enough vagueness, as I said, in in the deal. Um, but he wants to put big numbers out there in... In an election year, and the Chinese, as I said, are kind of starting from a low base because they've already reduced their purchases um, over the last kind of twelve months, uh, eighteen months or so. So, in the in the in the immediate future, hopefully, they'll be able to make a good show of um, of increasing their purchases uh, in, as we go towards the the U.S. election. So, there should be at least, in terms of compliance, in the short term, in, the, in terms of those purchases, uh, there should be some ability to kind of. To meet the, the standards expected. But, but looking longer term, um, China is going to continue to be uh, an export-led economy. And actually, to a greater extent than it has been since the financial crisis, there is actually a, a kind of a sense of, of um, a false sense of security that we've all been lulled into because of China's great debt expansion, that it's been contributing much more to kind of global demand um, than than it had been previously when it was much more export-led before the financial crisis, um, when it was able to kind of export more um, because of the the, the undervaluation of the RMB. Now that the RMB, on a kind of a longer-term basis, does seem quite overvalued um, on a kind of unit labour costs way of, of measuring things, it's, it's now having to look towards depreciating the currency, and that means kind of demand compression um, domestically and, and a kind of quite deflationary outlook, almost like a kind of a Japaning of growth. And that tends to mean that they'll have to be relying more on the rest of the world rather than China just relying on, um, on, uh, on the, the rest of the world relying on, on China.
0: Well, you say that, and and it's very interesting. And again, I take everything you say on board, Frey, I always do. Uh, But we've seen triple R cuts as well, very important. We've now seen a deal potentially. These should be great stimuli uh, for the Chinese economy. And and yet, adding to that, ahead of the uh, January 17th data due, uh, economists uh, polled by Reuters, literally fresh off the wire, think the economy is growing at 6%. Something doesn't tally here. We're getting stimulus left, right and centre. We've got 6% growth. Uh, And yet, as you quite rightly say, there are storm brewing for this economy. Are we supposed to be very worried then in the mean term uh, the, the medium term about the Chinese economy? you mentioned mentioned japanification uh, I'm worried about the debt profile as well other storm clouds brewing.
3: I think in the very short term, as in the kind of two to three months, the leading indicators are looking quite good, particularly the kind of the Tyson manufacturing gauge, um, that has the, the relationship between that gauge and what we think GDP growth, um, is actually doing, which is different from what the official numbers are. That, that, those two, um, indicators have, have moved quite well together in, in recent times. And that, that means we should be reasonably positive over the kind of the immediate future for, for China. But it's a very narrow recovery. It seems to be very much related to the kind of the tech cycle, um, and, and very much related to phase one. Whereas the domestic economy in China still seems to be um, on, on, on lockdown. Particularly the consumer sector, having been hit by the, um, the 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 swine flu and the the price increases that that entails, in a slowing labour market. And and yes, there has been stimulus. I'd say actually that that stimulus, at least the effects of that stimulus on the on the real economy, um, especially in the second half of the year have really stalled. And that's that's worrying because we're only just starting to see the kind of the six to nine month leading indicators. So if you look at kind of M1 growth, we're only just starting to see those pick up. And if that's now going to stall, it means that not only we're we looking at a very narrow recovery, it means that we're looking at a very short term recovery that's not very sustainable. And if you look to kind of Indicators on a kind of a two to three year um, horizon. So thinking broader money growth M2, um, and because the the authorities still have this kind of deleveraging campaign, keeping M2 growth equal to nominal GDP growth, that is actually a very tight policy over the medium term. So we could be looking at a further kind of step down, cyclical step down within even that kind of two to three year horizon. Um, which means that we'd be looking at cyclical growth even below um, a, a, a falling structural growth profile, which is deflationary and um, means there's, there's less of a kind of a, uh, an underlying demand growth um, for, for, for China to be contributing to the rest of the world over that two to three-year horizon. All
0: right. Take a breather. Um, if we can, we'll come back to you in a couple of moments' time, if that's all right with you. Um, lots of things to discuss. Uh, Huawei, front and foremost of the news flow, on this side of the world as well. Well, of course, on this side of the world, you're only in Newcastle as well, so very similar. All right, Freya, thank you very much indeed for that. So in the meantime... The US, EU, and Japan are calling for stricter WTO rules on state subsidies. That's interesting, isn't it? Let's have a look at those names again. US, EU, and Japan. Okay. State subsidies in which sectors, I wonder. Anyway, in a move seen as targeting China's state-sponsored capitalism model, the joint proposal urges the global trade body to ban means of state support that could give companies unfair advantages. Uh, The EU's involved in this. That's very interesting. Anyway, it also aims to stop the likes of China, South Korea and Singapore designated themselves as developing nations. Uh, The statement marks a moment of harmony in recent US-European relations and comes ahead of Thursday's talk between the two sides, a top trade officials. Juliana, so the market reaction to the trade deal, we hit new records, but then we abated just a tad.
1: Yeah, yesterday was a bit of a rocky day for stocks. We saw shares trading at all-time highs to start things off, but then those headlines came through suggesting that there would be no tariff rollbacks as part of this phase one deal. And that seems to have rattled investors because stocks took a dive lower, ended up closing off the lows, but investors were shaken up a little bit. So obviously some element of surprise coming through with the fact that tariff rollbacks don't seem to be part of the equation that will be part of the Signing ceremony expected today. We saw the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 close in negative territory. The Dow managed to hang on to gains, though up about a tenth of a percent. And now Stephen Mnuchin yesterday clarifying the stance going into today's expected signing ceremony that tariffs will stay in place until there is a phase two deal. If the president can get a phase two deal quickly, he will consider releasing tariffs. If not, there won't be any tariff relief. So to some, this won't come as a surprise, but to some, it clearly has. And of course, we're all waiting with bated breath if the phase one deal is actually signed later today. But beyond the macro, we're also keeping a close eye on banks as we uh, had the start of earnings season kickoff yesterday. JP Morgan, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo all reporting. As you can see here, JP Morgan reacting very well to what was a record record reporting period. JP Morgan up 1.2%. Citigroup also reporting a strong quarter up about 1.6%. The strength for both of those major banks was in fixed, so fixed income coming through very strongly. Wells Fargo, on the other hand, had a much more bleak uh, reporting set, reporting period. Wells Fargo shares down more than 5%. They disappointed there on legal fees, low interest rates, those two factors weighing on earnings, and the chief exec there pledging to cut more costs. So Wells Fargo stood out as the underperformer among the banks. Uh, earnings season will continue to today and we'll run through the details for you a little bit later in the show. Meanwhile, let's take a look at Asian markets, what the trading session looks like there. Red for the most part, we've got the Nikkei 225 trading about half a percentage point lower. The Hang Seng down about the same. And then over in mainland China, the Shanghai Composite down about half a percentage point as well. Investors in Asia, of course, watching just like we are, just like those investors stateside, what happens later today in terms of that phase one deal signing. Let's take a look at European opening calls. Yesterday, the stock 600 managed to break a two-day losing streak, gaining about a third of now it looks like investors in Europe going to start out the session on a little bit of a cautious note. We're looking at modest losses at the open according to these uh, uh, these numbers here. But no major moves. However, that more cautious sentiment expected to filter through to the European start.
0: Juliana, thank you very much. Indeed. I think there is an extraordinary date, uh, data privacy debate that we all need to think about as well and the ramifications on both sides. But coming up in this debate, the president has taken another bite out of Apple. We'll tell you about this story after the break. Very important story.
1: Plus, if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune into to our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more.
0: But this is what I was talking about before the break. President Trump has attacked Apple on Twitter, accusing the tech giant of refusing to unlock phones used by, quote, killers, drug dealers and other violent criminal elements. The tweet comes a day after the Attorney General William Barr called out the company for not assisting the FBI in unlocking the phone of deceased shooter, Uh, in the Pensacola, Florida shooting. And again, I think you can all do a bit of soul-searching and think about this one, and actually probably amongst yourselves come up with very good arguments on both sides uh, of this debate. Meanwhile, the U.S. is preparing to unveil a new rule that would increase its power to block exports to Chinese tech giant Huawei. That's according to Reuters. Washington can currently block shipments to China if more than 25% of a goods value comes from U.S.-made parts. Officials aim to bring down that level to 10%, but only on exports to Huawei. Well, Freya joins us again, Freya Beamish, Chief Asia Economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. And Freya, uh, I've been pondering the question, as indeed we all have for a long time, is Huawei just collateral damage? Is it a bargaining chip or is it a major US and perhaps Five Eyes Nation security concern? And we saw this vividly, as you saw yesterday with Boris Johnson's questioning uh, on Morning Program and BBC yesterday as well. Um, it just shows you though, that the concerns about the splinter net, split technologies and technological transfer and theft are still very paramount, aren't they?
3: Yeah, um, the US is not the only country that has problems with Huawei. There have been issues um, across the board. And OK, the US has been pressuring other countries to um, to have issues with, with Huawei. Um, but those those, um, the, the investigations by various different other countries did sort of precede um, all, of the, all of the tensions between the U.S. and, and China, or at least the, the most kind of recent flare-up. So there is kind of some, some reason for, for underlying uh, concern with respect to that, that company, but it certainly has been in for a lot of collateral damage. Uh, in the war between these two, uh, the trade war between um, between the two kind of greatest, largest economies in in the world. Um, I think if there's anything that the Chinese side has really learnt from this, on a kind of a macro sense, it's that they need to speed up the the process of moving up the value added chain and to try to. Um, to try to become self sufficient in those components which it has been um, relying on other countries for, particularly the uh, semiconductors and, and these types of, of things. Um, now, that means that potentially, or I would say almost definitely, and that's that's a big thing for an economist to say uh, that the Made in China 2025 uh, program is not going anywhere. It might have been toned down in terms of the um, the, the rhetoric and, and how often it's referenced in Chinese media, um, but the, the the reality of the situation is that they have learned this lesson from from the trade war, and that the kind of the, the macroeconomic um, reality of the situation is that China will continue to be an excess savings. Um, country and that saving has to go somewhere. It's going to take a lot of reform over a long period of time and China would really be, be beating all of the kind of historical precedents if it was able to kind of redirect um, income towards the household sector in a in substantial enough Quantities to really uh, to really be successful in that transition to private consumption-led growth, and that means there will continue to be an excess of savings. That goes hand in hand with the the kind of unwillingness to allow the kind of the bigger uh, firms to 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 fail. Um, and, the, and capital continuing to be tied up in those those bigger firms but the flow of, of savings um, will 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 pertain will will continue and that that can no longer go to the old guard firms that are kind of over indebted and also tend to be very polluting firms it has to go to the kind of new made in china 2025 firms um, and that means that there will continue to be a, a, a support from the state in one way or another whether that's directly through subsidies or through of capital and, and labour channels um, right, to support these kind of new firms.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
3: Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.